from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition School for Startups Radio. It's Friday, January 12th. I hope you're having a great day. We have a fantastic show as always. First up, Arun Gupta is with us. Venture capitalist, amazing success there. He's a lecturer at Stanford. He is senior advisor to the provost at Georgetown, author of a new book talking about how entrepreneurship and entrepreneurs need to get more focused on the mission of aligning people and purpose and all of that. It's an amazing conversation. We talk a lot about Japan in that interview. And in just a second, I'll share a little bit more about that. Uh, after that, we have John Fong with us. He is the entrepreneur behind Domain, which is Australia's leading real estate marketplace. It is another Really cool entrepreneurial story, a great uh, online uh, model for you to copy. So fantastic show. Appreciate you being with us. Before we get started with Arun, I want to talk about my experiences working with the Japanese government so you'll understand a little better the uh, referrals or references in the interview. When I was trying to get a job out of college, my dad would call or I would talk to him and he would ask, do you, you know, if you got a job senior year spring, he was freaking out. I was making almost no effort. I didn't even have my resume. I think I lied to him about whether it was done or not and was not getting any steps. And I finally got around to making an effort and I called the owner of a restaurant where I had been the bartender. It was a Japanese, very high-end Japanese restaurant. And uh, I was the bartender there. I spoke enough Japanese to impress the people, the Japanese business people in town. And so he loved having me there. I helped him get the Delta catering contract because I happened to know the Delta CEO and had him come in, et cetera, et cetera. He loved me. I called him up and said, I need a job. And he said, okay, let me, you know, let me look and see what I can do. He called back an hour later and said, can you be in Atlanta for an interview tomorrow morning at 9 a.m.? I said, yes, and hung up, drove to Boston. I was in Vermont, drove down to Boston, got on the first plane to Atlanta, walked into my house. And my parents, of course, thought that I'd been kicked out of school or something. They were ecstatic to hear that I was there for an interview. Had the interview the next morning with the JETRO, which is J-E-T-R-O. Nihon Boeki Shinkokai, the Japanese trade office outside of Japan, got the job by 9.30. I got home. One of my friends had called and said, you want to be my roommate? I had a job and a place to live all within one hour. Greatest job ever, too, for a 21-year-old. Amazing job. I'll tell you more about it later. School for Startups Radio hopes you will reach out to us if you have any questions or comments or if you need help with your business at any stage, from concepts to exit. Jim accepts all connections on LinkedIn. He tweets from at Entrepreneur Jim, and he responds to emails at james.beach at att.net. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show.
We are back in again. Thank you so very much for being with us. Very excited and honored to introduce my first guest today. His name is Arun Gupta. He is very successful entrepreneur and educator is a venture capitalist, a lecturer at Stanford University, and adjunct professor at Georgetown. He's the CEO of the Noble Reach Foundation, which is trying to increase the spirit of national service through innovation. He has worked with some of the most prestigious organizations in VC world out there, helping raise money and build industries at Columbia Capital. Prior to that, he was with Carlisle. You really don't get any more prestigious than that. Arun, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. It is my pleasure, and congratulations on the new book, Venture Meets Mission, Aligning People, Purpose, and Profit to Innovate and Transform Society. Tell us about the book, Arun. Uh, so the book Venture Mutual Mission is really, um, you know, targeting to hopefully inspire uh, this next generation around uh, the opportunities to both uh, serve and solve big problems in an entrepreneurial fashion and to, to do so um, while not necessarily needing to compensate on, um, you know, being able to financially reward yourself. So we're, we're trying to break the the uh, dichotomy between for-profit, not-for-profit, uh, the idea of public sector, private sector, you know, an artificial binary choice that I think we've given a generation to think about um, how they make their career decisions and here try to say that there's a, a place in between where you can kind of go do both. Um, and, you know, frankly, we also try to highlight that in our mind, um, you know, the superpower of this country has always been our ability to create talent from our higher ed system and also being able to, um, innovate in our entrepreneurial ecosystem and those strategic superpowers, um, in great power competition, we just need to get more innovation and more talent around government and, you know, start to show ways that people are doing this successfully, but then how do we scale this and make this more the norm um, so that we can con continue to solve some of the biggest challenges that we are continuing to face? All right. So you threw out a word there that kind of challenged me. You say that there are successes already happening out there with government working with business successfully already yeah. in America or in other countries. <laughs> No, and that's that's the issue. Like it, 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 there are success stories of of, of how companies are collaborating. Um, you know, whether you look at something like SpaceX, it's not just a, a venture on its own. It's it, it was a, a government collaboration and the funding that went into that. Uh, you look at a company like National Resilience, which was solving the you know the biomanufacturing issue during the COVID crisis was also a, a public-private, um, you know, collaboration. Um, and you can, and those are, those are more higher profile ones, but then there are uh, a, a number of them that are continuing to, to kind of grow. And so what we're trying to do is, you know, I, I, I think that's part of what we write about is the optimism that we see out there, but we need to amplify these stories and, and show models of why they're working. And then really, you know, we're asking the question in the book of like, you know, how do we do more of this? Um, as opposed to kind of proposing solutions, it's just to say, look, here are folks that are doing it well. Here's why we think they're doing it well. Now, how do we make this more the norm in our society? Um, you could look at even, you know, the way um, our COVID vaccine 
uh, process and, and, and development there was a great uh, example of how, uh, again, the, the public sector and the private sector collaborated, you know, albeit during a crisis, um, uh, to deliver, uh, you know, for our nation. All right. So I love this idea. It just seems like uh, most Americans, when you say the, or just throw out there government working with business, that most Americans will be negative right at the surface. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Because I think, you know, um, our, our, I think the perception right now is that government's a hundred percent broken. And Arun, this is great. We don't have to be Republican or Democrat. All of them are broken. They all yeah. suck. Yeah. Thoughts? Well, I I think that's part of the reason that we need um, this renewed partnership between government and entrepreneurs um, is because this is how we solve these problems. Um, and this is what we talk a little bit about in the book as to, you know, there's a different uh, risk appetite inside of government and why that is. Um, and we try to also lay out there, um, how do you humanize government? What does that really mean when we say government is broken, right? Um, it, you know, let, let's parse that down um, in, into what really it is. It's, a, it's an organization. Um, and you also have to separate out politics versus civil servants. Um, and that are going in every day, you know, trying to do, you know, the best they can and with positive intent. Um, then the question becomes, how do you support them in doing that? And how do you, how do you help innovate, um, appropriately the private sector? Um, you know, look, I joke around as, as a VC, if I was measured like government is, I would never raise another fund. Um, in the, in the venture community, we get, we get judged by our, our best successes. So I can make 10 bets. Two of them are wildly successful. Eight of them don't work. I, I raise another fund after that. Um, in government, you can make 10 bets. And if nine of them work, but one of them is Solyndra, you're carrying that around with you for a while. Um, and so we, just, we need to kind of parse through that and understand why these systems are what they are. Um, and then look at how do we create a renewed partnership? Because I act, you know, in, in the thesis that we hold there is in a rapidly changing world where, you know, technologically, geopolitically, socially, um, you know, the folks that are best equipped to help um, think about how to solve these problems, you know, essentially building a plane while you're flying it are entrepreneurs because that's what they're trained to do. Um, they're trying to kind of test and learn very quickly. And how do we, um, you know, create that level of partnership um, so that we can get our best innovation, but then scale it with this scale and reach that government can provide. All right. I, when I think about this, I think of some other countries that do this very well, in particular, Japan, we could say China does it well too, but then we would get accused of being communists or something like that. Uh, so we don't want to do that. Don't want to make that mistake. Do you look to other countries, Arun, and see examples of success around the world where this is working? Um, look, I think um, some of the Scandinavian countries do this well. And we talk about that in the book and the, some of the European countries, um, you know, but they're not at the same level or scale that the U.S. is, right? And so I think we have to acknowledge that the scale that we're dealing with here is much larger. Um, with that comes a different level of complexity uh, around it. Um, having said that, like, I also think no country in the world has an entrepreneurial ecosystem like the U.S. does. Um, and no country in the world has a higher ed 
system like the U.S. does. Um, those are, are strategic superpowers, right? Um, and over decades, we've gone through a path where we've said, let, let a thousand flowers bloom. Um, but we need to align those around these larger ambitions. And, you know, the truth is, you know, look, we're coming off the, the COP conference. You know, you don't solve climate with just a startup in the valley. That's not just a private sector company. But you also don't solve it with just governments coming together because they don't have the innovation and the technology um, ready to solve these problems as well. So, I mean, if you just take a, you know, something as simple, not as simple as, as, as visible as climate right now, you're, you're seeing that this is a, uh, a necessary uh, public-private partnership that needs to happen, but it's got to take a different form. Um, because public-private partnership traditionally has always meant government and big company collaborating. Um, but now with our innovation being more decentralized in the entrepreneurial ecosystem, you know, the way government and venture arrangements are structured, um, you know, need to adapt for that. And that, that's what we're trying to highlight. Um, and then what we're also trying to highlight is for students um, that are looking to do things that are entrepreneurially, because a lot of, you know, I think this generation wants to be entrepreneurial. They, you know, they don't have the same faith in large institutions um, that, you know, previous generations have had. Um, they want to go create and go solve problems. But being able to address that problem, not at going after Candy Crush 3.0 or ad optimization, but, you know, solve those problems that also have, you know, a societal benefit to it. And that in doing so, you can still do that and make money doing it. Um, and that, that's, that's the thesis of what we talk about and propose in the book. All right. How would that happen? How would the government be involved? Is it only through finances, uh, oversight? Uh, what would be involved? Yeah. I mean, look, I think there's different tools, um, that government can bring to the table. Um, you know, especially around new technologies uh, that are emerging. Um, it doesn't necessarily be need to be about financing companies, um, but it could be about um, focusing uh, uh, ventures around outcomes that they desire. So if any company can, you know, meet a certain threshold of, of a, a requirement, whether that be, you know, like we did with the vaccines, um, as we did with SpaceX and space launchers, as you look around different domains, you know, the government's ability to purchase product is, is, is an important driver. Right. Um, and then being able to purchase it to help get to a point where the commercial market then um, can adopt it in a more a broader way. So I think, you know, that's one uh, 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 lever that they have. You know, another lever is in some of these projects um, that may be more capital intensive, um, being able to provide first loss. Uh, um, backstops. And so, you know, if the private sector comes in with, you know, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars um, in the event that the project does not succeed, you, you try to help reduce risk by providing first loss of the first 10 or 20%. Um, and what you find is we do this internationally quite a bit um, through uh, um, an institution called the DFC, um, but we, we could be using these um, same things here domestically for ourselves. Um, you know, the third is kind of convenings and, and, and the kind of collaboration that you'd like to see with academic institutions, workforce development and talent development. Um, you know, one of the big areas that we talk about in the book as well is that it's not just about ventures getting connected to government and, and technology coming into government, but it's also getting better talent into government, right, that can receive that innovation, that can receive that technology. Um, and, um, you know, that's where we think the, you know, the infrastructure to, 
to bring in that talent needs to be modernized. Um, you know, we, we talk about a stat in the book where less than 7% of tech workers, um, and this came from Partnership of Public Service, um, you know, are under the age of 30, right? And we have four times as many tech workers over the age of 60 in government. Um, you know, the average age at one of the big tech firms is probably mid-30s. And so, you know, we're, we're a little bit upside down there and we need to think about like, how do we um, bring in more younger talent? You could look at that stat and say, okay, you know, one conclusion could be this generation doesn't care. Um, or you could look at it and go like, maybe this generation really does care. And really what we don't have is the right infrastructure to on-ramp them and bring them in. Um, or in the, the way they want to engage with governments in a different capacity. Um, and so that's what we... You know, again, we, we touch on a lot of these issues um, in the book. Um, an example would be, you know, a top AI or bio student coming out of school. Um, it's still very prestigious to go to Teach for America. That gets a wow reaction when people kind of, you know, go do that for two years. So I think these students want to serve. Um, we need to create programs like that that allow them to go into one or two year rotations inside of government, um, whereby, you know, having done something like that, enhances their career opportunities after the fact. Um, and so, you know, I think the talent piece um, is incredibly important. Uh, you know, we joke around that, uh, you know, government sells careers, students are buying experiences, um, government is selling jobs, and the students are buying mission. So, but if you can create a one or two year mission oriented experience, you know, we really, um, we're seeing it out there through our foundation. There's a high degree of interest from students right now. A lot of things are coming to mind. Arun, do you remember, I guess it was toward the end of the Obama administration, he had an entrepreneurial event, and for some reason, he started talking about mattresses at that event. And you look at it today, and we have 15 or 20 mattress startup companies. And it seems, if you go back and trace them, Almost all of them had someone at that conference, uh, got, you know, and, and I, I know, cause I've interviewed, I think half of them, you know, we have that funny. purple mattress yeah. company and the crate mattress company sure. and the, the dehydrated mattress company, you know, all of these mattresses, it seems, and I hate to be, you know, make the joke of it. It seems that the mattress industry was created that one day with an offhand remark from president Obama. And of course, half of them, more than half are going to go bankrupt, if not already have gone bankrupt, right? They, we just didn't need 15 new mattress companies. We needed maybe two, you know? Yep. I mean, it's an incredibly small example of government skewing the marketplace. Does the marketplace know better? And does us getting involved in the marketplace produce results like Solyndra, like too many mattress companies? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm a venture uh, investor and I'm a VC. I, I actually don't think that's skewing the market. Um, you're, you're laying out an ambition for what you'd like. What, that's probably not an example of what a societal need may be. But a societal need can be, um, you know, technologies that we need for climate, you know, the kinds of uh, um, semiconductor infrastructure we need so that we're no longer dependent um, you know, on, on Asia for our, our supply chain resiliency, um, you know, the defense uh, tech that we need um, to, to maintain and keep up with, you know, an increasingly uh, autonomous, um, you know, 
uh, way of, uh, of having combat. And so I, I think laying those out there and letting the private sector figure out who comes in and who doesn't, um, that's just the natural course of creating businesses. Um, I don't view that as skewing the market um, in, in, in any one way or the other. Um, you know, people can decide from a private sector standpoint and a management standpoint how they want to kind of coalesce around these opportunities. Um, but I think this is, this is part of the core issue, um, right, is that failure um, happens all the time in the private sector. And that's why we innovate. Um, and somehow, if you make a mistake on the government side, you get demonized for it. Like, you can't expect someone to be right 100% of the time. Um, and if you are right 100% of the time, I would contend you're not taking enough risk and you're not innovating fast enough. Um, so I think that's, you know, again, that's the contention we make. It, it, look, it, it's a, I'm a product of that experience of being a VC, and this is what we used to do with our portfolio companies as well which is you wanted them to be experimenting constantly, knowing that um, a number of those experiments weren't going to work. Um, but you also realized that that was the only way you were going to innovate. I hate to go back to Japan, but I actually uh, spent a huge chunk of my college and graduate school in Japan, did my master's in Japanese, and huge difference there. The entrepreneurs there don't expect to become billionaires. They expect, well, first of all, there's just not many entrepreneurs there and their, their goals are not the same as here in America. You find so many entrepreneurs who go, their goal literally is to be a billionaire. That's all they want. And the smartest of us in America would never go into government, right? That's just not what we do. Whereas in Japan, the single most prestigious job that you can get in Japan, bar none, is working for Meaty, M I, or it's now Meaty, M E T I. That's the most prestigious job in Japan. That's working for the government, making a hundred thousand dollars a year. Uh, how do we get Americans to want to work in the government again when money seems to motivate Americans and you ain't going to get the money in the government? So, look, I think there's a couple, um, there, there's a lot to unpack in that statement, right? Um, one, you know, the presumption that every entrepreneur wants to be a billionaire. Like, I just think that's flat out false. No, not all. Um, not all. I'm not right. going to say all, Arun, but I don't even think, I, I think he's not even, half. no, but I, but I, 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 again, you know, I think 95% of entrepreneurs don't think about becoming billionaires. Um, because again, we take a very small slice of entrepreneurship, which is the, the ones in the Valley creating really high tech companies. And then we, we kind of paint the rest of entrepreneurs with that same mindset. And so we talk about this in the book, right? Like we try to personalize entrepreneurship. The small business community is, 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 is a vibrant community in this country. Right. And none of these folks are not a lot of those folks are looking to raise venture capital or try to um, you know, become billionaires. Um, they're creating jobs, they're doing great work, they're serving a need, and they're looking to scale. Um, and so, you know, at the core of the problem a little bit is this kind of, you know, some of the, the, the things that you're, you're surfacing um, are, you know, we can't be demonizing government and we can't be demonizing entrepreneurs because the, the, the centralized thesis we have is we need both if we're going to solve big problems and if we don't if, if, if we are demonizing them we're never going to collaborate and that, that that's 
we're never going to get to where we need to get to. Um, so on the entrepreneur side, what I would say is, look, you know, most entrepreneurs, you know, it's about a mindset, right? It's not about an outcome. Um, and, you know, what, what I mean by that, it's about resilience. It's about grit. It's about, you know, testing and learning. Um, you know, it's around building and creativity. It's about thinking about there's a better way ahead. Um, those are the values of being an entrepreneur. And that's what we should try in the book, at least what we try to highlight and focus on, um, in, in conjunction with that, um, you know, to your point of attracting people to government, I, I understand what you're saying, but I actually don't think that's the full story. Um, I don't think it's only about compensation. Um, I think it is about what you are highlighting with media. It's about prestige, right? Um, and I'll give you a proxy for it. Um, and that would be that, you know, I had, you know, there, there are two students. One gets selected to go into government, both, you know, top, you know, AI or CS students. One gets selected to go into government into a prestigious program called Kessel Run. She tells her friends she's going to go do it. And her friends go, why would you go to government? Why would you do that when you can do all these other things in the Valley, right? Her other friend says, also equally talented, says, well, you know, I'm going to go do Teach for America. And her friends go, wow, that's amazing. You're going to serve, you're going to give back, and then you can go do whatever you want. And, and, and the, the relevant part of that story, to, to your point, is that Teach for America person's earning half as much, right? So it's not necessarily about the money. It, it, it's about something deeper. And it is that sense of respect. It's a sense of prestige, but it's also being viewed as a career enhancer. Um, you know, today, you know, the, the beauty of that Teach for TFA program is, you know, three decades later, you're part of a community, but you also feel like once I've gone and served and done something, you know, that's valued by private sector folks. I can still go to some of the bigger recruiters on campus. We don't have something like that for government right now. Um, that's what we're looking to, to do here at Noble Reach um, is to try to see how we can facilitate and help rebuild the, some of that infrastructure. Um, but I think, you know, how you collaborate with the private sector becomes important. Right. It's difficult for government to go, you know, and frankly, they're not allowed to go collaborate with the private sector. Um, they can't play students that come in and say, OK, now that you've spent two years here, let's get you a job at one of these firms. But a not for profit can play a role in that. Um, you know how you also show up on campus to recruit. Each agency isn't showing up on, you know, every campus to recruit. But, you know, maybe that's a role. And, you know, our, our contention is that's a role for a not for profit to play in, in helping with that. Um, to create the excitement and not focus on the what government does, but the why they are doing it. Um, you know, we were chatting with someone at one of the agencies and she's like, you know, when you go to USA jobs, they list the job as, you know, data analyst, um, you know, geospatial. And it's like, there's nothing exciting about that. But when you actually think about what the person is doing, they're actually helping rebuild food networks using satellite information in Ukraine. It's like, if we could talk about it that way, that's exciting. And, and what we're, what we're, you know, believing and what we're seeing is students, you know, especially where we are right now, post COVID, um, you know, with Ukraine, what's happening with climate, obviously, um, and our geopolitical adversaries, students want to kind of find a way to do their part. They just don't know how to do it. Um, I've seen that change from pre-COVID when I, I do feel like most of my MBA students were all rushing to get to Wall Street. To today, many of them are really taking a deeper look as to kind of like, you know, what am I contributing um, and how do I find purpose and fulfillment out of this?
And what ecosystems need to be created? We only have about a minute left, Arun. What do we do to make this happen? What is it a new government agency? No, I don't think so. I, I, look, I think we're trying to do our part with the Noble Ridge Foundation. It, it is, um, you know, I think it's it, it's folks and, and not for profits that can, you know, be uh, ready to scale that can help serve as a connective tissue um, between the academic institutions, the entrepreneurial ecosystems, and government. Um, and you know, we need. Um, institutions there that can be that convening power, have that connective tissue, but more importantly, um, have the resources to be able to scale. Um, at Noble Reach, we have about a half a billion dollar foundation, um, so we, you know, it gives us a good start to try to, to you know, build some of that infrastructure. Um, but obviously, we, you know, a lot more partners are needed in this because um, it's, you know, it, it's a sizable problem. Yes, it is huge problem. And I hope you make an impact and congratulations on the book just came out two days ago and already selling. Well, I can see congratulations. How do we find out more follow online and continue the venture meets mission discussion? Um, well, thank you. Uh, if you go to, uh, venture meets mission.com, um, you can find information out on, on the book. Um, and, and, and order. Uh, obviously, it's also available on Amazon. Um, again, Venture Meets Mission. Uh, and, um, you know, we, we've been uh, pleasantly uh, uh, surprised with the uh, inbound interest from, you know, a diverse set of stakeholders, the private sector community, um, uh, entrepreneurial community, finance community, but also academic institutions and then government not-for-profit organizations. Fantastic. Arun, thank you so much for being here. And I hope you're back in a year to tell us about all the progress you've made at Noble Reach. Thank you for having me. We'll be back in just a second to talk about leadership in Australia and a really cool website down under. We'll be right back. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a wonderful question, actually, Jim. Oh, my gosh, I love the opportunity to do this. Thank you, Jim. Wow, that's, that's awesome. That's a great one. You know, that is a phenomenal question. That's a great question, and, and I don't have a great answer. It's, that's a great question. Oh, that is such a loaded question, and that's actually a really good question. School for Startups Radio. We are back in again. Thank you so very much for being with us today. I am very excited to introduce my first guest calling in all the way from Australia. Please welcome John Fong to the show. He has had an absolutely fascinating career. He worked at Google cloud and was a global leader there. So you don't get any higher than that. Also at Uber, also a global leader there and has since gone home back to Australia and he is now one of the team running domain.com. It is sort of like Zillow. It is a home finding platform there in Australia. If you go on it, it will sure make you want to move because boy, do the properties look beautiful. John, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Yeah, great. Thanks so much for having me. It's uh, wonderful to be here. It is our pleasure. All right. So let's start off at a macro level. What's the difference between working in the States for some of our biggest companies and working in Australia for some of your biggest companies? Yeah, yeah. So 
Uh, thanks for the kind intro. Obviously, I've spent some time working uh, for some of the biggest companies in the world, uh, Google and Uber. The great thing about the US is that everybody is paranoid. Everyone in tech is paranoid. They're trying to do better. They're trying to make better products. They're trying to. They're conscious of competitors. You know, it's 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 relentless. Everyone's grinding. Everyone's pushing. Uh, even when you go on holiday, you might be thinking at work. Uh, that was what you know. Growing up in Silicon Valley was for me. I spent about uh, over a decade in Silicon Valley in two different stints, working and studying there. You know, I think in Australia, there's a lot of that ambition, that desire to be better. I would say I found better balance in Australia. People generally don't work weekends. People generally don't work nights. They want to do well, uh, but it's not, it's not as cutthroat, it's not as grinding. So it's really nice balance between that determination to be great, uh, which I think makes America so great, uh, but also that balance and that family time, which I think is harder to find that balance in America. Very interesting. And I would have to say that that strikes me as very true. Uh, very true. Yes. All right. So you went home for better, a better life, I guess. That makes a lot of sense. What do you miss about America? Anything? Oh, yeah. That's a lot. America is amazing. Amazing. You walk down the supermarket, America, you have thousands of things to choose from. You walk down the street, you have every cuisine in the whole world. You meet people, particularly places like Silicon Valley and melting pots. You know, I spent that decade meeting people all over the world, brilliant people who bring different perspectives and, and life and fun and family and cultures. You know, and, and look, I live in Sydney, Australia. Sydney's got a lot of that. But I feel America is the place in the world where so many people come to build a better life uh, and so many people come to, to climb up the ladder, you know. And I think that reflects a lot of things. Like if you, we love Amazon. Amazon's the best in the world in America. Get anything you want, just from the couch. Just put, put it in there and it comes within 24 hours. You know, uh, you've got amazing healthcare in many parts of America. You have amazing services. Uh, Australia is a great place too, but America is the best in the world for seven things. What do you dislike about America and Australia is better at and you're glad to be home? Damn it. <laughs> well, I talked about the balance, uh, which I think is cool. Uh, you know, there's partly a cool thing about being a big fish in a smaller pond. In Australia, I mean, I did grow up here, but, you know, in the business community, the tech community, it's small. You tend to be one or two degrees of separation pretty much anyone. In America, you know, you walk down the street, there's like 10,000 people who worked at Google and a few thousand people who've studied at Stanford, and you probably even know each other. So it's so much bigger in America than there's a smallness and a familiarity about a smaller population, which is nice. I'd say that's one thing. I do think that in America, it's a lot more of a polarized society. And, you know, I'll, I guess I'm talking about politics here a lot. But there's a lot of vitriol, there's a lot of passion, and that passion can be very polarizing. In America, in Australia, I mean, people are passionate too, but I think uh, the views are a lot more moderate. Uh, there's not that much difference between the two political parties in terms of uh, you know, beliefs and issues. Uh, there is some, but it's certainly not quite as vitriolic as I've seen in America. And I think it's a, a little less toxic, a, a lot more helpful here, obviously. Well, yes, the United States couldn't get any worse right now in terms of our hatred for each other and the politics of the other, the bad people. We all know who we're talking about, those guys. <laughs> yeah, the politics of the other, it's tough. That, that is one of the things which uh, is, is very toxic. And what about the management styles between Australia and the United States? Who's a better boss? <laughs> You know, I think uh, there is something about leadership that is universal. People are looking for leaders who respect them, who make things psychologically safe, who lift them up, who develop them. I think that's true whether you're in America, whether you're in Australia, whether you're in Asia. Everyone is, in a sense, looking for the same thing because we're all the end of the day human beings. 
I think in Australia, things are a lot more relational, you know, so particularly I work in real estate. Uh, people, other CEOs who I, I work with and I sell to, they want to know you care. They want to see you in person. They want to shake your hand. They want to look you in the eye. They want to go out for a drink with you, a beer with you, right? That's all true. Not that's all true in the US, but I think US, there's such a much more of a focus on building for scale, on self-service and things like that, that things tend to be a little more transactional, which I think is necessary. I remember at Google, we had the, the toothbrush test. You try to build something that is used by billions of people twice a day. You can't sell a toothbrush individually to all those people. You have to build for scale. And I think by definition, that makes things a little less relational in terms of the sales process, which is where I work. In Australia, I know by name, by face, by handshake, you know, my top 50 companies. Huge difference. Yes. And obviously, I don't know if it's fair to ask one if one's better, but is it fair to say then that if you don't work weekends in Australia, you're a little bit less productive or do you not buy into that? Do you think that, you know, you're more productive in five hours or five days than someone who works six under extreme pressure and hates it? Um, that's a great question. I, I do feel that there is some evidence suggesting that after some point in time, your productivity declines. I don't know what the point is, it's 50, 60 hours a week, but people get less productive. There have been a bunch of studies on that over time. I think it's very hard to doubt, though, the productivity of America. There is a reason why America doesn't have anywhere near the biggest population on the earth. It has by far the largest GDP, right? There is a way that both using technology and hard work, America has driven more productivity than any other nation. Uh, you know, it, you know, and, and I think some of that has got to do with just that desire to work really, really hard. So it's hard to fault that, even though it's not necessarily the life that I want for now. Right. Well, I think there are a lot of things more important than working that sixth day or the seventh day of the week. So, <laughs> how many of the American stereotypes of Australia are true? Uh, you know, we all think <laughs> of Crocodile Dundee. What are your thoughts on our stereotypes? You know, the thing I love about being, I love that being an, an Australian in America is that Americans love Aussies. And I'm partly biased because I, I married an American wife, a California girl, and I brought her back here. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's first-hand proof of that. But I found that me and my Aussie friends were just really loved by Americans because I think we share a lot of the common values and DNA. We like, we do believe in hard work. We want to achieve. We want to be the best we can be. But at the same time, uh, you know, we, uh, we love fun. We love to have a drink and a snack and a meal. We love to talk about sports. There's a lot of common shared values uh, that Americans, Australians have. Uh, so I would say a lot of stereotypes about Australians being, you know, fun-loving uh, and, and, and loving a lot of things Americans do, but maybe having more time to spend it, uh, largely true. I don't think there's as many kangaroos and crocodiles walking the street as there might be stereotypes or people carrying on beer the whole time. But we definitely do that on the weekends. And moving on to the business, let's talk a little bit about domain. Is it the same as Zillow or is it closer to the MLS in America? Is there an MLS uh, for Australia? That's a very astute question. So I think for some of you listeners who don't know, the MLS is the multiple listing service. It means that basically anyone in America through an agent can place their property for sale and anyone can see it. Any real estate agent can see it, or if you use Zillow, Redfin, uh, real estate, uh, realtor.com, you can actually see uh, what other people have put on the MLS. Now, your question is very stupid because you're right, Australia does not have an MLS. 
So the only way that you can appear on an app like Domain is by having an agreement with Domain. And there are, uh, there's a paid version, there's a free version. And that's basically how we make money. If you want to be found on our portal or our website, you need to pay us for that privilege. Uh, and that's how we make a lot of money in Australia. So very interesting. So are there competitor platforms that lift different or list different houses for sale? If I wanted to buy a house, I would have to look at multiple places. Uh, that's, that is correct that there is a competitor. There's one large competitor uh, in Australia. Um, even though in theory, even though in theory we have different houses, the vast majority of houses for rent and sale are the same. The vast majority. So if you're selling a house in Australia, you'll probably list on, on both leading platforms, one of which is today. Okay. And how do the two platforms compete on price, on quality, on exclusivity? What's the competition based upon? There's probably two main forms of competition. One is the audience. So the main attraction that we have is the person who pays for it is the person trying to sell the house. Let's say, I'm going to sell my house. Uh, I'm going to spend a few thousand dollars to make sure it's on domain so people can find it. So the most attractive thing for them is the quality and the quantity of the people who are using the app and doing searches in that area. So the most important thing we can bring is a really high-quality audience, uh, people who are looking to buy, people who are ready to buy, uh, and people who really like using the app and look at it every day. That's kind of how we compete. Who's got the bigger, bigger audience and the richer, high-quality audience? Who's got money uh, and who's ready to buy uh, and bid on a house right now? You want, if you're a seller, you want as many people interested as possible in your house who are willing to pay as much money as possible to get the highest possible price. That's one way we compete. The way we compete is we all have different features. So, for example, we, uh, you know, our parent company owns uh, three of the largest newspapers in Australia. Uh, we appear in a weekly lift out on the weekend, uh, you know, which, which showcases all the beautiful homes and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's something which you know, our main competitor doesn't have. Uh, we have other features as well, uh, tools for real estate agents to help them do their job better. So they like to do business with us. Um, you know, so there's a bunch of other ways that we compete in addition to having a really big, a really engaged audience. I don't know if you heard this, John, but about two months ago, a court in the United States declared that the pricing structure that American yes. real estate agents have been using for decades is illegal. The 6% flat. What are your thoughts yes. on that? What's the yes, Australian practice look like? And what do you think that the future could toll for any changes there? It's a fascinating topic. Uh, and it's one where there are, I think, very valid arguments on both sides. Um, the thing which I really have liked about the U.S. program is that it kind of institutionalizes the use of buyers. Right? So both in that 6%, half goes to the agent represent the buyer and half goes to the, the agent represent the seller. And I loved buyer's agents in America. Some of the buyer's agents we use, because I, you know, I bought a lot of properties in the US, including places where we lived, they're just amazing people. They helped educate us. They helped us avoid traps. They helped us get the right house. We had them at our wedding. They're close friends. Uh, you know, it was just such an amazing service. And in most of the countries, because that money is not put aside, very few people use buyer's agents. So in Australia, it's less than 10%. And I actually think that is not as good for the industry uh, because it means that people end up making bad decisions, uh, that there's a lot more you know, problems that don't get caught out because someone's not advising the buyer. So I would say that's one advantage about the current structure in the US, which has now been deemed to be illegal, at least under threat. I think the big disadvantage is that, you know, basically everyone pays 6%. 
you know, and in Australia, it's much lower. Like the average commission is about 2%, and that just goes to the selling agent, and there's no commission for the buyer's agent. And so as a result, some people use buyer's agents, like I did to buy my house here. Uh, some people pay seller's agents more or less, but you have, in a sense, perfect competition uh, as opposed to that 6%, you know, which is a relatively flat thing. So that's the big advantage for, you know, consumers, you know, in Australia, uh, and what I guess the, the courts are ruling for in America. So look, let the market decide rather than, you know, have like a standard that people must adhere to, even if they don't value a buyer's agent or want to pay their seller's agent as much. That's interesting that there's no one to help the buyer. I would think that would be a great business opportunity to, you know, always help the buyer. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. It is, it is. And there are a lot of amazing buyers agents here in Australia. Like, you know, we, we use one to buy a house. I think they're, you know, whatever houses I buy in Australia, I will definitely use one. I think they're hugely valuable. But, you know, because it's not a thing here, because the vast, minority, vast majority of uh, all transactions do not have a buyer's agent, most people go, like, why would I pay $30,000, $40,000, you know, to use a buyer's agent? Like, why would I do that when I could, most people pay zero? So because it's not a thing, most people aren't doing it, and most people aren't, wanting to pay money for something they're not already paying money for. Sure. That's why the, 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 the take-up is so low. What is the residential market like in Australia now? Right now we have a, a lack of inventory almost everywhere in the United States. What's it like there? Yeah, it's a bit different to, to the U.S. It was similar about a year or two years ago when the market started coming down uh, because the interest rates went up. And that was because, like in America, uh, because interest rates are going up, the buyer demand decreased. Um, it, it decreased a lot. And so as a result, people didn't want to sell. The inventory went down, you know, and, and kind of transactions and prices went down. But one thing that's different in Australia is we do not have 30-year fixed rates. We do have fixed rates, but it's usually fixed for two years. It's very, very short. And so most people, when they buy, will fix for two years or not at all. And so as a result, the interest rates, uh, you know, hit everybody. Hit everyone really hard. You know, in Australia, they went up by about 4% as well, similar orders of magnitude to the US. And as a result, there was not a big disadvantage to moving. Even if house prices had gone up or down, wherever it was, if you were paying uh, 4 or 5% interest on your house and you moved, you'd still be paying 4 or, 5%, 4 or 5% interest. And so what we've seen is activity has actually picked up over last year, both on the buyer side, people want to buy a house because the economy stabilized, and therefore people selling houses going, okay, well, there's buyers out there. Uh, I'm going to try and sell my house, get a price, and then I'll move. Right? So that's been happening in Australia. And largely, things have returned to, I would say, still below normal levels, uh, not as good as it was post-COVID, uh, in the year post-COVID, but better than it was last year. That's what's happened. But in the US, of course, because everyone is on these fixed-rate mortgages, which is normally a good thing, there's a huge penalty to selling right now if you need to buy again and borrow again. And as a result, you just have very few people who want to offer their house on the market even though there's plenty of people who would like to buy. And so the U.S. housing market is in such trouble this year because it's basically stuck. No one is going to move unless they're not going to buy again, and the vast majority of people selling want to buy again, and they don't want to give up their 2% fixed-rate mortgage, uh, you know, fixed for 30 years, but something's going to cost them 7 or 8%. So that's why Australia is in a, uh, not an amazing spot, but a better spot than what America is right now. John, why have you been so successful? Why are you the guy that Google puts in charge of the entire cloud? Uh, what about you? Are you smarter? Are you do you read more? Are you uh, is your emotional intelligence smarter? Are you better looking? What's the key to the uh, <laughs> success? Well, this is a radio interview, so I can't verify the uh, the, the good looking part, unfortunately. Well, I have a picture uh, of you right here in front of me, so I see what you look like. Oh, that's true. 
<laughs> I'd say, look, a few things. So first of all, it, it's to the extent to which I have been successful, and, and to say, I wasn't running all of Google Cloud. So, you know, I managed a multi-billion dollar business looking after a few hundred people who sold Google Cloud through agencies and channels, right? So I had a great and wonderful experience at Google and a similar job at Uber. It also put down to a few factors, just a, a huge thing is, is luck. Huge thing is luck. And when I say luck, I mean luck in terms of I was born to migrants from Malaysia and Hong Kong in Australia. And I was born to people who believed a lot in the value of education and were happy to make personal trade-offs to put me to the best schools I could. And I was fortunate to be in an education system that valued both academic uh, prowess, you know, which I really enjoyed, but also really valued um, you know, extracurricular activities and leadership opportunities, whether it's kind of military cadets or sports or music or debating. And the combination of good academics and kind of like a well-rounded system of leadership made me very attractive uh, to university scholarships and ultimately to Stanford. It was very, very similar to the, the kind of things that they look for in a Stanford MBA uh, and, and a McKinsey consultant, which were the schools that I had when I was young. So when I look back at that, a lot of it was luck that I happened to be in a family and exposed to activities and people that gave me a breadth of both academic exposure and extracurricular leadership exposure, which made me very conducive to these you know, very well-credentialed schools. And as a result of going to these well-credentialed schools, like a McKinsey, like a Stanford, it may be very attractive to employers, you know, like a Google, like an Uber. Uh, and that is kind of a virtual cycle, which I think works well when you have a leg up in life. And unfortunately, it can work very poorly if, you know, for a lot of reasons, which have got to do with, you know, the, the wealth of your parents, often the place where you just have to be born, the country, the suburb, the electorate, it can absolutely work the other way. So there's, I don't want to downplay the huge role of luck, both in terms of where I was placed and the conditions which I got exposed to, even before I had a choice. Um, I think the other thing about me is I, I struggle with emotional intelligence. Something I'm trying to work on, I often miss things. I'm trying to get better at it. The one superpower I do have is I know I am ignorant and I know I need to learn. And I think I that keeps that. me hungry. It, yeah, because if you know that you have to learn, then it's hard to be too cocky. It doesn't mean that you're not smart at things. I, I think I could do lots of cool stuff, but I know I need to learn. It doesn't mean I can't do a good job, but it doesn't mean that I can't do better. It doesn't mean that I can't lead people, but it means I can learn from everyone. And I think that mindset is very, very helpful and has stayed, helped me to pivot, you know, through different jobs, successes, and failures. And what about Uber, the perception now in the United States based on some movies and things like that is that Uber <laughs> was uh, an animal house, a bunch of uh, bad <laughs> kids run by a, a bad boss. What are your thoughts? Travis has not aged well you know, here in America. Uh, he has not aged well. Yeah, I joined Uber in 2019. Uh, I think Travis left uh, about two years earlier. Ah, and a lot of the, yes. the, the depictions of, of the movies was, you know, in that, in that time period. Uh, I was very lucky that by the time I was at Uber, uh, the, the pandemic came shortly after, you know, it was already a very, I would say, family-friendly, uh, very considerate culture place. It was very similar to a Google. It was very different to the fraternity house uh, image that it, that it had earned you know, in its first 10 years of operation. So, you know, I would say I can't speak too much to that. I had a lot of colleagues who had been there for that time. And it sounded like it was crazy. It sounds like it was crazy and amazing and very terrifying and very hurtful uh, and very unfair. Uh, and it was, it's not clear whether that was in spite of or helped form what, what has ended up being a very good business model. But, uh, yeah, it was, by the time I got there, it was, it was actually a really nice festival. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I didn't know that. Uh... 
what the the new guy has a, a name I can't pronounce. Uh, yeah, Dara Dara Kawashami. Yes, thank you. It's good to hear that. And you mentioned emotional intelligence. Uh, I think anyone who mentions emotional intelligence has a very high one. If you have a low emotional <laughs> intelligence, you don't even mention it. Uh, how are you making yourself a better leader in 24? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to work on. Uh, I'm a huge believer in power feedback. So we do uh, a lot of anonymous feedback surveys, you know, at Domain, at the company. And I, I you know, I also use a coach uh, and I really try and develop relations with people who can tell me what I need to hear, even if it's something that's not pleasant. And so for me, that is one-on-one for me is because I am not emotionally intelligent and empathetic enough to pick up whatever cues and I'll miss them. I definitely need help on people or by people to help me get there. That's one thing I would say. Um, the second thing is um, I've always tried to use my job to stretch. Right? So, for example, I come from a technical background, but a lot of the last 15 years have been sales for me. I'm looking for opportunities to round up my skills in products and technology in marketing. And so, you know, back in the day at Google, these were 20% projects that you would do uh, on, top of, uh, on top of your core job, uh, on top of something different. Uh, now, uh, you know, I'm in a really, I'm in just a wonderful position. It's the best job I've ever had, uh, looking after the sales uh, for this company. I'm the chief revenue officer. Uh, but, you know, I really want to get involved in the marketing side, on the product side, on the technology side, to make sure I'm learning about how the product gets made and make me a, a more well-rounded leader. So there are a few things I'm working for in 2024. Excellent. I love it. John, thank you so much for being with us and educating us a little bit about uh, real estate in Australia. I, I learned a lot. How do we find out more following you online? Uh, yeah, probably best to connect on LinkedIn. Uh, my LinkedIn is John, J-O-H-N, full, F-O-O-N-G. I think I'm the only one in Australia. Uh, and I work for Domain. Uh, that's where I, that's kind of my social network of choice. And I love following people and learning, not just within the industry, but people who are, you know, like many of your listeners, interested in leadership and business. We will love to learn from each other. So that's the best way to connect on me. Uh, and obviously, if you're an Australian-based listener, I know you're some Aussies, uh, you know, and you'd love to learn more or, or collaborate, please just reach out to me and, uh, and we'll chat. Fantastic. Thank you so much, John. Great stuff and really appreciate it. Thanks. Have a great day. We are out of time. Be safe, everyone. Bye now.